say that one of the reasons you had black feminism emerging in the 19th century, in the early 20th, it was because of class. It, 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 it was because black women experienced racism, patriarchy, and class inequality. Class was always, was always a part of, of, of black feminism. Because we constantly talk, black feminists constantly talk about us having, having the, the worst pay, the worst kinds of jobs, service jobs, uh, inability therefore to, to, to have a certain uh, level of living. And, and we always talk about it, Cherie said, that we are, we are in the wage labor force always. Black women are wage workers. Period. And so black feminism never was about um, uh, uh, the black, the few black women in our communities who had class privilege. It was always about uh, what does it mean to have not have class privilege, race privilege, or gender privilege. That was Beverly Guy Sheffold, professor of women's studies and English at Spelman College. Because of her central role as a practitioner and as an academic, in most developments in black feminism since the 1970s, Beverly is called the godmother of black feminism. She is the editor of the path-breaking anthology Words of Fire, an anthology of African-American feminist thought. I hadn't met Beverly prior to this recording, but my co-host, Shri Davis, was a student as an undergraduate, and in recent conversation, they have explored the relationship between black feminism and black worker organizing. I feel honored that we can launch this mini-series on Black Feminism by talking with Beverly. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, this is Stephen Pitts, um, co-host of Black Work Talk. I'm super excited today. We're starting our third mini-series. As you know, our first mini-series is on Black labor. The second was on the Black left. And we're starting mini-series number three. And the focus will be the question of Black feminism. And I'm so glad to have my partner in crime on this, my, my good friend, Sheree Davis. Sheree, how you doing? Hey, Steve. How you doing, Steven? I'm, I'm fine. I'm really excited. Thanks for jumping on. It's good to see you again, by the way. Yeah, um, no, I'm happening? good to be here. Uh, you know, look, look, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, we're going to talk Amazon. Then I listened to last week's show and I was like, they already talked about it. So now I just want to talk about the Supreme Court justice. So that... If we, if we, <laughs> if we it's your choice, it's your choice, because we didn't hear your voice on Amazon, by the way. <laughs> and so you want to do a little riff on Amazon's fine. You want to talk about our new Supreme Court justice fine as well. Your choice. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm always thinking, particularly this past week, I'm always thinking about the um, assassination of Dr. King. I was actually really happy because uh, my, my pastor, um, Dr. R Leslie Don Callahan was the keynote speaker at the event um, at the Lorraine Hotel, at the museum, you know, I just always feel like there's a moment where where people miss it, and and so every every year I know my son is tired of watching at the river I stand, but you know we have to make sure that he understands because that that was his late father's work was really to make sure that people recognize this connection between civil rights and labor, and so I was actually really excited on Monday just to be thinking, wow. I had been reading Bell Hooks's um, All About Love, and she was talking about the strength to love sermons by Dr. King um, and the power in love and activism. And then to me, that Amazon win in uh, Staten Island was a very good example of what happens when you you love your coworkers to justice, right? Like, like really kind of digging in. And so it it I, there was a New York Times article 
um, that I read recently where they're like, best friends beat Amazon. And I was like, oh, I just, I, I love that. And I love that representation, particularly of Black men loving uh, as, a, as an engagement of, of, of labor and labor activism. Uh, and so that's a little bit of what I was thinking about last week until then I was just jumping up and down on my on my feet, clapping my hands because we have a, a black woman Supreme Court justice. And uh, so anyway, those that, that's like literally my last week was just all about those highs. Those highs and lows, I guess it's really good. A couple of things for our audience. Um, you mentioned that film, As If I Stand. People, it's just a phenomenal film. It's, it's a, about an hour-long documentary that traces kind of the start of, of the strike in Memphis from, of the sanitation workers. And then it pivots to when Dr. King was summoned to Memphis and goes through his final days. It's just an incredible film. I, I've showed it many years um, for our Black leadership school. I cried every single time. It's just an incredible, incredible film. And, and not to do a commercial for um, the Rain Motel, but the museum there is incredible. Um, you, you go there and you walk through kind of a, a quote-unquote typical sort of Black museum. And you're in, the, in, you're in the motel itself. They made the motel into a museum. And what happens as you walk through the museum, you don't know it, you're walking to, to, to the balcony. And all of a sudden, you have the balcony where he, where he was shot. And it's, 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 um, it's both moving and eerie. And it's a must-see event. It simply is. And then we have a new person on the Supreme Court. On Supreme Court. And she went through hell, by the way. They put her through hell. I always say people be who they be. They do what they do, and they are who they are, and they did what they did, and it's it's a, it's a shame that happened. Um, but that's where we are right now in our country. I do want to kind of pivot and bring in our our, our, our guest today. I can't do a formal proper introduction, and so she fulfilled kind of simple my introduction. But we're going to have we're having with us Beverly Guy Sheffield. I first met Beverly. We didn't quite meet at the same conference, basically. I um, made about twenty years ago. Um, people have called Beverly the, the the godmother of Black feminism, and that may or may not be a good, I like that. <laughs> that good term, Beverly. Can we call, call you that? No, I like that. Okay, that's your title now. Okay, <laughs> we have the godmother. I, I like that better than aunties. <laughs> okay, for now on, we have the godmother. That'd be on the, on the promos. Okay, um, but Beverly's mm-hmm. done some incredible work on on looking at the question of of feminism and looking at the idea of Black feminism, and one important value of many values of having her here is that Beverly was kind of there in the founding moments of black feminism. And what always happens to any sort of idea, it mutates through time. And so what happens is we have an idea, a set of energies, some, some, some thoughts that were developed in the, the early to mid seventies. And we see what's happened to it 50 years later on. And not saying that's good or bad, some things change. And so the value of having Beverly here is to get a sense of Black feminism from its origin story. Um, but more important, or maybe equally important, get a sense of what it means today. Because as folk know, our, our main drive in this podcast is a question of power and building power for Black workers. And, and, and just as Sri talked about the power of, of love and having really communities being built to fire us, to, to fight through the wall, it's so a question of, of what Black feminists can lend to the efforts is really important to, to understand. So, Beverly, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. So, Godmother, okay, <laughs> tell me a bit about Black feminism. What is Black feminism? Okay, before you do that, can I say something personal? Of course. So, I want to first of all acknowledge my comradeship and sisterhood with Cherie, who was a former student 
of mine at Spelman College, women's studies student, and the first associate director of the Women's Research and Resource Center. So Sharia and I have a long history. So I want, I want to say that. Secondly, I want to say, Steve, how good it is to meet you. I've been looking at your podcast and I will continue. And if I can say something in connection with Sharif acknowledging the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis, I am from Memphis, Tennessee. And I would go back and forth from Memphis to Montgomery to visit relatives. And so I experienced Martin Luther King as a child uh, at the uh, church in, in, in Montgomery, uh, you know, growing up. My grandfather was actually at the church the night before King was assassinated. And when, when I went home that summer from Spelman, uh, this was April the what, uh, 4th, when I went home that summer, my grandfather talked about what it meant to be in that church and to know that King knew his days were numbered and that when he left there. So I, I, I grew up hearing that uh, in the same way, Cherie, you have exposed your son. So I just want to say that Growing up in Memphis, being a part of the civil rights movement before I was part of the women's movement has had a huge impact. And I always think about both Martin and Coretta Scott King in that regard. So just wanted to say that to begin with. Yeah, I didn't know the connection. That's a phenomenal connection. So I'm um, glad, glad to have you here. Okay. So the question that you asked me, or, or what is Black feminism, is a question that I get all of the time. And so also in memory of Bell Hooks, with whom I shared a 40 year friendship. I want to give uh, her definition of feminism, which is not the definition of white feminism. And basically black feminism is the political idea that all forms of oppression, which are global and persistent, all forms of oppression are interconnected and structural. So white supremacy, racism, heterosexism, ableism, class disparities, all of those systems of oppression are connected and we experience them simultaneously. In other words, at the same time. So black feminists who you know, talk about intersectional feminism say that we have to dismantle all of those structural systems of oppression and that we cannot prioritize one over the other. So white supremacy is dangerous and needs to be eradicated. Heteropatriarchy is dangerous and needs to be eradicated. So that's what I would say uh, uh, black feminism is. It, is. it is this idea that all of these systems of oppression which oppress us and keep us out of power positions need to be eradicated. And from a black feminist perspective, <laughs> talk a lot about the fact that racism isn't the only form of oppression that keeps black people not liberated. So that's what I would say black feminism is. That was good as you're talking. I thought about the, the group that was formed in the 70s, the Third World Women's Alliance. One of my mm -hmm. dear college friends was an early staffer for them, and she went to New York to work for them. And they actually have a new book came out about the Third World Women's Alliance, and there's a book talking mm -hmm. about that. And the same thing that you mentioned in terms of the interconnectivity of oppression, they talked about it as well. And and to me, it was interesting, not trying to split hairs sometimes, but I I hear a distinction between interconnection, interconnectivity and intersectionality mm -hmm. in a literal sense. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, I know, Sri, we were talking, I guess yesterday, right? And you were saying that sometimes people view the idea of intersectionality as you have two streets intersecting. And, and, and that is far, far different from what you talked about in terms of things being simultaneous and interconnected. And, and what my, my take, and I'd be glad to get your reaction and go different directions, is that when people interpret things as being two streets crossing, it's a very much a transactional conversation. That when we cross, we connect. When we don't cross, we don't connect. When we hear things being simultaneous, to me, it lends more to a very much of an organic conversation, organic connection, because in all points in time, we are one. I think it's a very important distinction that that, that is partially splitting hairs, but I think it's important to go beyond the idea of transactional attempts to build power to more transformative and organic attempts to build power. Yeah, I think one of the things that is just kind of running through my head, I remember when I first got exposed to um, Black feminism, uh, I was a, uh, almost a senior. I think I was a senior, uh, about to graduate mm. from Spelman, ab- ab- about to miss it, basically. Um, and miss graduation now or what? No, 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 well, honestly, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that. There's a whole different story with that. But I, I, I was about to miss it, right? I, I'd been at Spelman. I was in psychology. I took a political science class for my major and I had the opportunity. It was the first time I was asked to like develop my own theory. And in all my life, I have never had, I had never been asked to like bring my own perspective, my own opinions to a paper. And, and, and that would be the paper. And I focused on bell hooks and it just happened that the black men for the eradication against sexism conference mm-hmm. happened and bell hooks was in town. And I was able to literally sit with bell hooks and get direct quotes. And I turned in my paper and my my professor basically walked me over to the Women's Resource Center and delivered me to <laughs> Dr. Bev. <laughs> and, and, and for me, what happened that last semester of my senior year, um, I got a language for things that I had been experiencing and feeling my entire life. It was literally like somebody flipped on the light switch. And the thing that kept running through my head was, you know, it's not just Black feminism, the idea. It's Black feminists, the people who were doing things that I did not know, right? There was this whole lineage of Black women that I wasn't aware of. And in my mind, I kept thinking... These women are climbing through the window. They are finding the back door. They're letting in their friends and they're going to confront whoever is trying to keep us out of this house that we are supposed to be in. And to me, it wasn't just the thinking. It was the doing part, like this notion now that I have language of a praxis. But that piece was what grabbed me because it, it weren't, people weren't just sitting around thinking about it. Like there were there were very real activities that I could look back in history and say, oh, I didn't know black women were involved or that they were shaping or that they were doing these things. And so to me, when I think about black feminism, I'm I'm always cautious that it is it is a collective a mm-hmm. way of thinking about things, but it also is the necessity of the doing. And so I, you know, I just wanted to kind of put that out there as well. Mm-hmm. Can I say something in that regard, um, Steve? I always have to say that my feminism, uh, my initial feminism came from my mother. (laughs) I didn't learn feminism with white people or white women. I didn't even realize that I was 
of being raised by a feminist mother. And let me just mention three things that are extremely important. And I was embarrassed, but my mother petitioned the Memphis public schools in the 50s, the white patriarchal um, races, Memphis public schools to have me uh, not have to take the obligatory home economics course. She was very aware of problematic gender norms. And she said her daughter was headed to college and be better if she take typing instead. So I was, I did not have to take the obligatory home economics course. So that's what, can you imagine? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the eighth grade. And of course I'm embarrassed. And then number two, when I was married and both us were academics and my former husband was in a PhD program and I was you know, working and not in a PhD program, my mother would constantly say, when are you going to get your PhD? That marriage is one thing, but you have a life of your own and you need to, you need to get yourself a PhD. And then for all of her three daughters, she would constantly say growing up, you need to be independent and be able to sit on your own box. And so when I was introduced to academic feminism and the women's movement, which was, you know, activist, I didn't, I didn't resist it because I had already been, been raised by a feminist mother. And I think it's important for Black women, when we think about origins, to acknowledge that, that some of us got that inside of our families and because of our lived experience. Now, Bell Hooks talks about the fact that she came to feminism because she really understood patriarchy from her patriarchal fa uh, father. And so that led her. So I think it's important for us to say that we didn't get this from white women. You know what, when you talk, both of you talk, I think of a couple of things. One is that the idea came from actual experience, not books. Mm -hmm. And in various ways, it links back to, Sheree, you mentioned the idea of praxis. It's important to get that connection there. And because of a, one fundamental experience is the issue of work, your mother said, your girl gets your degree, you need to ha have some good capacity to do some work. And so it yes. ties the question of, <laughs> of an experiential-based feminism to the question of work. And too often mm -hmm. what happens is that the way that work impacts how we see, how we see ideas and then put them into further practice is lost. And we get this kind of idea of any idea, in this case, feminism, detached from work and detached from class, therefore. And so in some ways, you're telling a story, an origin story, that deeply tied to the question of, of practice and work. And I would say kind of political economy, not in, in a sterile mm -hmm. way, but very much very grounded way that that's oftentimes lost in the conversation. Question. What was given the importance of praxis, okay, and the, the combining of actual activities and, and, and theory together, what were some of the early forms of, of, of that in, in the 70s and 80s of the practice? Well, you know, if, if we take Combahee River Collective, you know, let, let, we could even go back to Tony Cade in 1970. And of course, um, if we take Combahee River Collective, which, which are the uh, mostly queer, but not all queer Black women, who pulled out of National Black Feminist Organization uh, because it was traditional reformist and not welcoming of queer people. The Combahee River Collective was interestingly enough, very bothered by the killings of black women, working class black women in Boston. So, so you know, we, we, we tend to think about black feminism as, as, as only about gender, but, and it was, they were, also 
are concerned about police brutality, a broad range of racial justice issues, not just about women should have the right to abortion or women should even have equal wages. So very broad range of what it would mean for black people, men and women and children to be liberated. And, and, and they were very bothered by the fact that the, that the traditional black power and civil rights and racial justice movement was not intersectional. It focused primarily on the elimination of racism. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it that it comes back to that thing about what comes first. You know, are you black first? Are you a woman first? Mm-hmm. Are you straight first? Like all of these things. And folks are like all things all the time. And, you know, honestly, when I think about, um, and, you know, and I, I actually was teasing because I was like, the Kambahi River Collective is going to be what we have to talk about because this is one of the few places where, I mean, I grew up in a union household but didn't really come to understand that until I was in graduate school. But in the 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 manifesto uh, by Kambahi River Collective, and also in um, Kim Crenshaw's um, demarginalizing, like you mm-hmm. basically are bringing labor struggles front and center. Um, this is the place where people are talking about picket lines to me. This is the place where they're ba- making it very clear about um, women of color being factory workers or, or or being excluded from these types of union opportunities or what have you. This this is the beginning of this, and so I, I don't I never came to labor through labor, right? Like even even mm-hmm. though I grew up in a labor household. Right. Um, and, and quite frankly, because of General Motors and my dad working there, that's why I got to know I was going to go to Spelman. That's why I was able to have the education that I had. Right. The, 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 the funds to cover it. But it, it really was black feminism that made it make sense so that when I'm at Ohio State and there's a strike on campus, that I'm recognizing this as a feminist practice and that our entire women's studies department is out there, you know, as leaders involved in this in this action, uh, it is legible to me through feminism, right? Through a particular black feminist lens that we were able to articulate, you know, in that struggle. And so I, you know, I'm always, it's a very interesting piece to have these conversations within labor because oftentimes people have a very specific labor history that they bring to the conversation. And very often the relationship to black feminism is completely absent um, and, 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 and really honestly under discussed. Could I say something in that regard? Uh, the, the plight of black domestic workers was always central to black feminism. And I'm thinking about the Washington strike in Atlanta in the in the early 1900s, now we didn't we didn't construct that as, as black feminists, but that was a black feminist uh, uh, project, right? <laughs> black feminist project, but it got it, it got put into civil rights and race, but it was really intersectional black feminist project, right? And and also like very clearly, uh, we will shut down the city, right? We we will shut down the city. We will not do any work, and you will not be able to bring was it the expo? You will not be, be yes. You will not be able to yes. do what you need to do. So they're hitting at the government, and they're hitting in the you know <laughs> with the employers at the same time. Uh, understanding political economy, there's no way to engage any of the things that are happening with Black women in work without engaging in both, you know, those arenas at all times. This has been a rich discussion. I, uh, some questions pop up in two, di- two different directions. Um, one question, I feel like I'm kind of picking you, Beverly. What happened? What happened? What happened? Sort of thing. But 
There's also a strong amount of black female activism in labor during this time period. And so Ola Kennedy was a woman who worked, was active in the Steelworkers Union um, in, the, in the Chicago Gary area. And she was active in, in, in kind of a, a, a class-based feminism from that perspective. I know Addie Wyatt was active in the Peckham's workers soon become UFCW as one of the first leaders of, of CLUE, the Coalition of Labor Union Women. So one question I have is, did you have kind of explicit connection between black women leaders in the labor movement and kind of burgeoning, we call, call revival, and we'll call that issue of black feminism in the 70s and 80s. Any connectivity there at all? See, I hope Cherie uh, uh, also said something. This is the problem. This is the problem. We 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 talk about civil rights history and black labor history as as not connected to black feminist history. So, uh, so this is the problem. We don't we don't have a, a, what I call a, a history that connects all of that. So that, for example, when Rosa Parks sits down on the bus in the 50s, that's perceived to be civil rights. When Ida Wells Barnett does an anti-lynching campaign, even though it is clearly a Black feminist project, we, we disconnect it. And so, Sherry, I think in some ways, even Black feminist history has been a culprit in this. That is, has not always connected these various Black women's activisms in labor movements, in peace movements. I mean, Coretta Scott King, I mean, I'm, I'm pulling her into the Black feminist movement where she never was. So what would you say but, about but that? How, but, but how was she not, though, right? I mean, like, Who? Coretta Scott King, right? Because... Well, first of all, we didn't even know about her activism. Right. Her LGBTQ right. activism. Exactly. She was the most passionate of those so-called early civil rights because, and, and what I argue is her concept of the beloved community was broader and more radical mm -hmm. because it was intersectional. Right. But but she but she gets stuck over, well, hers is even right. worse because she gets named as, as a just widow. a wife of. A widow, right. It's a widow, not even an actor. Yeah. Now, uh, so I think there's one of the challenges I think that we're kind of trying to address is it, there's some instances where we were always working in the gaps, right? And so it's kind of like a, you know, again, you know, pick a side. Are you are you are you race first or are you gender first, right? Um, and you're basically trying to write into existence. Because again, I'm going to add like Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker. Mm -hmm. People can say what they want to, but. 15, 20 years ago, nobody was having conversations about Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker in the way that we do now, right? Like, I think about, right. like, some of the work that Barbara Ransby's done in terms of being able to shift the way, like, shift our lens where we're actually centering the work of uh, folks that were not necessarily always at the podium, right? Like, the, that we mm -hmm. were recognizing uh, uh, the, the organizing that's happening on the ground. Like, I always say that, you know, without an Ella Baker, if Dr. King is speaking to e empty pews, we're not having the same kind of conversation. Like, that piece of her going ahead of time and, and organizing and making sure that the church is packed, right, and that all the things are, are, are set to go, might not have been at the podium, wasn't at the podium, right? Like, but it, a, a much necessary piece of going in for the before and the after. And so we lift up that kind of organizing now, but the, the problem is, is that black women, quite frankly, have been doing that organizing everywhere invisible, right? Everywhere invisible, doing it in labor invisible, 
right? Doing it in the civil rights movement, invisible. And, and just now we're having some of the conversations where people have gone into the archives and had to recreate and, 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 and write us into existence. And so I, I just feel like some of the problem is, is that, you know, in some ways we had to get into higher ed to be able to be the ones to get into the archive, to be able to write the essays and the books and so on and so forth. We're just getting, we're just scratching the surface, quite frankly, because we just now got enough people out here who are really actually looking, putting a spotlight on it. And so I think that, that there's, a, there's an underpinning around like why we have like these fractured things happening, we didn't necessarily also have the, um, we didn't have the language to be able to tie it all together. We didn't have all the pieces to the puzzle. But I would put out, put forth as an idea, not a certainty, maybe new Sheree, and I'm putting it out of certainty, right? More of an idea for me at least. Um, that part of the story is also a lack of power. And so in my mind always that, I can't say jokingly that the, the, the GOP today can say that two plus two is five, and we can't do anything about it because of the power they have. And so to me, when we see kind of these developments and at times distortion of ideas, it functions from the power of those people who put forth the ideas have the capacity to impress, to impress their view of the world onto the world itself. And, and so, I, would, so I, I partially raised the question about the connectivity between the black women who are active in the labor movement and black feminism in terms of how you see granted power to change the world, that, that this stuff is not simply ideas of trying to understand the past to, to, to do it, but we understand the past to change the, the present and the future. And I, and I wonder is, was, I wonder what the connectivity there, and I wonder how you develop an actual organic power that kind of forces under the public transcripts these ideas instead of battling in the background. That's what I'm kind of raising. I think back to how I thought I was so correct back in my youth too many years ago, okay? And I was partially correct in a lot of ways wrong. But by and large, we, my friends, my comrades had no power. And so we got washed aside. And so then you saw the splitting of race and class or splitting of race and class and gender. But it comes because of lack of power to, to put your, your imprint then on the world today and the living history. And I want to keep going back to the idea of your view of practice once again. And to the extent we don't have the boots on the ground to impose a complicated view of the world onto the world, we get a neural slicer coming forth. And it's particularly important, I think, today because the danger of putting forth the importance of democracy in the place, in the, in the context of representation, is we, we keep change at the level of representation and not more deeper systemic struggles. And I think the elites have the capacity to absorb some change that I'll call surface change, but they'll fight to the nail for the structural change. And we mentioned, you mentioned before, Sri, about kind of the elation over having um, a black woman on the Supreme Court. And it's phenomenal in so many goddamn ways, by the way, okay? At the same time, some folk were saying, and now for the first time we have a, a non-white male majority on the court. and saying, are you serious? Clarence is there, right? Okay, we've got Amy Cohen Barrett there. And so what happens sometimes is the way people would take the correct question of fighting gender oppression and it will be funneled into similar issues of representation. And that can be done when simply a powerful idea movement is lacking sufficient power, sufficient staying power, and the elites grab it 
and they twist it to, the, to their ends. That's why I raised the question of the links to black women labor folk and other issues. Because I think without those connections to more power, then important ideas and histories get lost. And we get kind of the least version of certain things. That's how, that's how I'm raising the idea. That's all. I want to have a friendly amendment to that. It can be, it can be unfriendly. Don't worry about it, girl. You're okay. <laughs> okay. It's not, okay. It's not just power. It's the lens. Because this, this is the advantage of Black feminist politics. One of the things that, that Black feminists remind us of is that Black males have had the power to, to write Black history. They, they were the, you know, they, they were the ones that started teaching Black history courses, writing these African-American political history courses, I mean, uh, history texts. Uh, they uh, told the narrative of the Civil Rights Movement. So, so one of the things that Black feminists have said is that, that we have differential power. Black men might not have had power out here in the so-called white world, but they, they, ha they do have power in our communities. As ministers, they get up and tell our stories. They have had the power in civil rights movements. And so they were very much responsible for creating this, constructing this Rosa Parks as a tired old woman who sat down. They didn't talk about her anti-rape activism. So it's, 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 what we have is not just, not because black people have been disempowered generically. And the same things happens with black, black lives matter movement. Those, those uh, black women have gotten written out of that narrative, not by white people, by us. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> there's so many pieces and I, the, the thing that I would have to say is that um without a a sense of what um a radical politic is right like the the way that we were able to start writing ourselves fully into existence right not like not just the happenings like we this person did this and that person did this like in the kind of inventor way that we do black history month right but actually in the, what it took to, what you had to do personally in order to be able to make those happenings happen. And so the personal is political. Once that really became a very, almost like a rallying cry, quite frankly, what you started to see is people have to push back. I mean, my, when I went into women's studies classes, my dad made it real clear. You need to put that filter up, right? Basically saying, don't become a lesbian, right? You need to put up a filter. And make sure that, you know, you there's certain things that can come in, mm -hmm. but, you know, you can't let everything in. Right. And and, mm -hmm. and that was actually a long struggle to be able to, like, have the conversation, because even to this day, my dad will say, I always raised my girls to make sure that they didn't need no man, not even one, not even me to be able to stand on their own two feet. But then it's like when we're like. You know what? This guy is great, but he ain't great enough for me to be able to do whatever the case may be. My dad's like, maybe y'all are a little too independent, right? There is a conversation around like what it means to be an independent free person within the Black community and what it means for us to struggle together with different issues, right? And so you can't tell me that you want me to struggle around labor issues, but you don't want to talk about gender-based violence in the workplace or in the home, yeah. right? Or in the community on my way to work. And so the challenge that we've had is that mm -hmm. people want to pick and choose the issues. And, yeah. and nine times out of 10, the types of situations, and this is one of the things I love about um, Kim Crenshaw's, um, uh, the other art article, uh, Mapping the Margins, right? 
It's right. understanding that domestic violence has a, a particular impact on women of color and it has a particular impact on like them, their earnings, their ability to work, their ability to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And so we both have to have the intra conversation, right. And do that work internally. But we also have to have the conversation pushing back that says, no, white people, you can't do whatever you want to do to our kids. And no, white people, you can't do whatever you want to to our partners, our lovers, or what have you. And and simultaneously, we have to deal with that stuff um, from, from other communities while we're also battling internally with our own communities. And so the language that has been created has come from a very, very, very personal place. Right. We can't have a conversation about like what's happening with people out in the workforce and their mental health without recognizing how many women of color, black women in particular, have experienced sexual assault or rape by the time they're 18 years old. Right. Like we it, it, ha, trying to have that conversation. Right. And, 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 and extract these experiences as if they don't exist. Th that's a problem. And so we've been, again, trying to create the language to talk internally with our own communities that like, we ain't going to get free if you keep harming me, right? Like we can't do this together if we can't be together. And so I think those are some of the things that actually are the tensions that continue to exist uh, and still around this kind of pick, pick one over the other, right? What I was trying to say, and this is really good, by the way. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. I really appreciate this a whole lot. I hope the audience is as well. I was trying to say that the capacity for a set of ideas to stick is a function of power. And, 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 and therefore, that's what I'm trying to keep raising, that we can have so-called correct ideas or so-called a correct understanding of how the world operates. But if we don't have the power to kind of impose that on the world around us, it's like a tree falling in the woods, no one hears it. And and and, and so uh, maybe this is a different example, different arena, but as an economist, you know, for a long time, folks were saying that you couldn't have a minimum wage of $15. It wasn't possible, it's was crazy. It was just stupid as hell, right? Then folks said, I think we can. And they went on these different forms of battle Oh my God, we can do it. And so it wasn't so much the idea itself, it was the ability to, to contest for power around an idea, around the world that, that changed the view of what's possible around the minimum wages. And the reason why we have all this stuff around police brutality now, people went crazy when folks are getting killed in the, in the early 2000s, right? And so, and so that's an example of the, of the existence of power. So I'm trying to raise the question of, of power being important to not so much to validate ideas, ideas that need validating, by the way. It's more the idea of power being needed to have for them to stick and then push the world to the world we want to get to. That's what I was trying to try to get to. Is that a little bit clear of what I'm saying? Well, let me, let me, let me tell you what, let me, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that Black people get upset about the killing of Black men by the police. We do not get upset about the killing of Black women by us. That's not a power issue. That's a perspective. So police brutality is the number one horrendous racial things that we get upset about. We don't get upset about the rape of black women. I mean, even when black women were being raped by police under those circumstances, there's no black woman's name. 
that 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 rises like Emmett Till, Rodney King, and we can just do the whole list. Uh, uh, finally, what's her name? Whose name I'm forgetting was pushed in there. Brianna Taylor, and 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 before that, Breonna Sandra Taylor, Bland. We, yeah. we do not. We do not. We do. And and this is that's why I'm saying it's not about power. We 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 had we we had the the we have had the power to name. I'm talking about as black people what it is that we're supposed to get upset about. And the main thing we're supposed to get upset about is police brutality of black men. We didn't even talk about the police brutality of black women. And we don't talk about the violence against black women. That is that is not considered to be a big crime. And I'm gonna say something really controversial. Many of those black men that we revere had a bad history of domestic violence. We don't, we don't, we don't put that. We, we, we never say that, say that even Rodney King before he, they have a bad history of domestic violence. We would never say that out loud. And when I've said it out loud, people get upset. So we put these, uh, you know, we put them up on a pedestal because they've experienced police brutality, but we don't use an intersectional feminist analysis and say, but we also need to talk about the harm, the harm that they perpetrated on us within our community. And can I can I can I just really quickly I just want to add this other piece because there is a reason why I was drawn to labor right because the idea of being able to negotiate a contract to bring someone to a table and to come to an agreement that that for me was something that I felt was very tangible and it was something that I felt was really hard to see and find right in in terms of like black feminism like if we could come and get policy that would be great but then we have to focus on enforcement right like we have to focus on building the centers and focus on building the resources to be able to support and so on and so forth and in my head i'm like if in fact we can use these types of um tools to be able to have uh, uh, uh enforcement and build power around I'm interested in figuring this this piece out, right? Like because there's not like there's a a, a a situation where you know in domestic violence you can bring people to the table to work things out, right? You have the judicial judicial system, the justice system, or whatever the case may be. It never works out for anybody. But this there there was something in particular about this in labor that I was drawn to, and I still feel like there's something that we haven't fully explored in that. But the challenge is again is this constant inside outside battle. And if we're really seriously talking about building power, then we can't continue to hold on to these modes of exclusion that are connected to whiteness. And so you can't just kick your kid out because they have, because they identify as, as gay or lesbian, right? Like, or trans, like you can't just like, we can't just keep kicking people out the race, right? Like that. And that for me is the thing that we tend to not want to focus on that quite frankly, even in the way that we talk about Black Lives Matter, they have required people to, to attend to what it means to say all Black people, right? What, what it means to say we are, we are fighting for all Black people. And that means that you need to show up for all Black people. And that piece, right, internally is the thing, quite frankly, that Black feminism mm -hmm. is getting us closer to. But until people are willing to actually grapple with that, then we can't put up the fight that we're supposed to be putting up and build the power that we say we want to build. So um, I've been accused of oversimplifying over things and I, I do it a lot and, and I'll probably do it again until I, I stop breathing. Um, so perhaps I'm oversimplifying the question of power, 
but I would I would say with a very narrow view of what power means, or maybe overly broad view of power, your, your choice, is that the inability to hear other voices around what Black Lives Matter, the inability to, to talk about the need to embrace all kids, regardless of anything, is a function of power. Um, and and um, it may not be kind of the power we talk about in terms of you know, money in a campaign or boots in the ground. But, 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 but to me, whenever we don't have what we want, it's because we don't have sufficient power to get what we want. That's all I'm trying to get to. And that's all, I'm, I'm, I'm finally trying to, trying, trying to get a better view of power, how things operate. My, my worry is, is the idea that this is, not y'all saying, but my straw people people saying it, you know, that we can speak truth to power and that is sufficient. And, and that, that's that's my concern. We do have to speak certain things, but the power of our speaking comes from having boots on the ground in various capacities to impose our will on on certain certain things. And that, that's all I, I was trying to, to, to talk about, to trying to get, get that piece there. Because clearly folk were talking now about you know, black women being killed, as Beverly was saying, that animated folk in Boston in the mid seventies, right? It's not a, not a new thing happening, and so the question it animated black feminists. It animated black feminists. This is what we get. It didn't. It doesn't animate the generic black community. Correct. The, the, oh, it, it depends it, on who's being brutalized. Is the point? Yeah. Right. Right. And, and let me just say this: the black community, the black community, was not mobilized to to not have. Clarence Thomas be on the Supreme Court. We did not support Anita Hill. We supported an, a, a, a Black-hating, conservative uh, person who talked about his welfare system like a dog. Okay, that's what I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah, 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 fully. I, I, I remember, I mean, we can name names <laughs> that was, that was Clarence Thomas. Yeah. No, that was yeah, huge. Right, and it, and it was folks that you wouldn't even... Right. Exactly, and it wasn't just, it was also Black yes, women. absolutely. It wasn't just Black yeah. men. But that is, but that is still that because the thing that I also learned very early on was this piece around airing dirty laundry and the power that that had to have people kind of self police and not be able to talk about the realities of what we're dealing with. Here's the here's the thing that I would say again, and I know I keep going back to um, Kim Crenshaw, but the 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 laying out of what it means to be able to listen to folks on the margin, identify and name mm-hmm. a problem collectively to identify how to remedy the problem and to mm-hmm. repair the harm that has been done. Yeah. That, 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 that layout, right? When we talk about praxis, that's what I mean when I talk about praxis, exactly. right? That layout of all of those steps, right? In addition to getting to a place where you are reflecting on, okay, now what next? How do we build on that? Like you build your campaigns in that way. Like we we have that because of black feminism. And that and, and, and to be really clear, it's not like Kim Crenshaw was the first one to say it. She just said it in a moment where people were able to grab it, right? Quite frankly, it had been, I mean, literally, if I go through my words of fire text, we'll see that it was being said decade after decade after decade, right? Like, and it was again just caught in the right moment. And I, I think, you know, for me, being able to have something again, that a way of doing this work, not just 
the ideas, but like how we go about doing it in the ways that we battle exclusion, which is so deeply rooted in the American project, right? People are so interested in being exclusive or having something that everybody else doesn't have. That's all that capitalism, right? Right. When we're talking about opening things up, there is a process and a practice for being able to do that. And that to me is where I feel like we have to be having these conversations, not just political education, but how you get free. Like it's not it's not enough to just like have aha moments if we don't have a way for people to actually see start from the really hard, awful thing that they're living and embodying. Right. They're experiencing the oppressions that they're experiencing on a day to day basis to be able to call it by name, because as Kim Crenshaw says, if you can't name it, you can't solve it. If you can't name the problem, you can't solve the problem, right? You started to talk, Sheree, about about the the importance of how Black feminism can help actually change our practice itself. Can we take that and apply it, I'll say more nearly right now, with the idea of building Black worker power? So how how would a, a Black feminist lens enhance our capacity to build Black worker power? You know, this morning I sent an email off because um, I've been thinking about the um, the International Labor Organization Convention C-190, which focuses on gender-based violence in the workplace. And the thing that's really interesting about it is that it has been a rallying cry around the globe and women of color have been organizing like nobody's business, both to get the convention passed and now to get it enforced, Right. Most people in the United States have no idea what that is. It's not rooted Mm -hmm. in any, you know, any of the black worker centers, right? It's not rooted in any of the worker centers, quite frankly. Uh, Unions aren't talking about it. We talk about Me Too, but Me Too is not quite the same, right? It's a a Mm -hmm. campaign, but it is not something that we actually can lay out the, uh, like a, a resolution of what should be and what shouldn't be right in the, in the, in, and, and for me being able to like being in a space where we're building a black worker center in Philadelphia, I want to actually be able to sit both with a black workers bill of rights and with convention C one ninety, And I want to build in such a way that everybody who comes through that door feels like we mean that, you know, if you're working in low-wage work or not able to get get a job, right, you're underemployed, you name it, that that the things that we are going to figure out are all the pieces that are part of that, not just the part that feels most labor mm-hmm. or the part that feels most recognizably mm-hmm. Black, but like looking at the types of things that are barriers that most people can't see for folks who are so deep in the margins. We don't even talk about the way that Black people with disabilities, and we have one of the largest, like when you start talking about the disabled community, Black folks are the ones who have some of the largest numbers, and we don't have good language around like what it is that we want or what we would need to be able to address that. And quite frankly, when I was a union rep, I saw in D.C. that they were using the language around disability to basically say that black folks with an addiction were disabled. And so therefore they could pay them less than minimum wage. Right. These are these are the kinds of things that are happening all over the place. But we're not we don't have a, a broad enough lens 
We're not looking from the perspective of how we disrupt this exclusive idea of like who is black and who deserves attention. Those are the pieces like for me that we have to be attending to. Because if we're going to, if we actually reach deeper into the margins and we make sure that, that it's like the best that it can be for folks who are standing in that space and we're standing with them, then it is going to address the needs of folks who have much more power and privilege um, to be able to maneuver. And and that for me is, is almost like an ethic of how we have to go about doing this. Sherry, one example of what you're talking about is waitresses, for example, experience sexual harassment almost all day on their job. Waitresses. We talk about their wages, but we don't talk about the sexual arena in which they operate. Same thing with hotel workers, pri- primarily women of color. But, yeah, we so start we to, to see that. Bring, yeah. Yeah, we, but in the one fair wage yeah. campaign, right, has started to address that. I think that's rock. Um, and I think in, in Chicago, they, but they've started putting like, you know, the buttons in for people to be able to like, yeah. but you know, this, again, this is, these are the places where we see convergence. And actually when you start seeing more women leaders in some of these labor unions, you start hearing more feminist principles. But the thing is we ain't, yeah. def- we ain't got the numbers yet, right? Like there's a, just like, we, we just don't have the numbers yet to be able to like, see and broaden like like what is happening but you're absolutely right in terms of looking at these um particular kinds of jobs the ones that are seen and unseen Mm -hmm. i mean i know some some Mm -hmm. some black folk who are organizing sex workers and i remember when i mentioned that like 15 years ago and folks was like "Mm, mm, mm, not labor we're not talking about that i'm like they're doing it Mm -hmm. in india they're doing it like all Mm -hmm. over the place folks are thinking about this in brazil you name it but we actually mm-hmm. have to be able to talk about what is, not what ought to be, right? Like, like what we think ought to be, right? No, when I hear you speak, Sheree, I think back to one of the one of the many good things of the Amazon campaign in Long Island is that you can't untie those folks from the race and their work. And and too often what happens is that people pose an either or, you know, which mm-hmm. are you? Like, and and they're saying no, we're both. And I think that kind of approach of of treating people as whole folk and making sure they have the capacity to speak the very their various dimensions and don't have to put one in a closet and, and bring another one out is it's so super important. And what I hear you saying that that, that we should be doing that's an important important add on to to our movement and building power. Yeah. Um, another question. I guess I my twenty questions. Y'all can answer my questions. I, I leave here being brilliant, right? Um, <laughs> We could also talk about the specifics of of black trans workers. Who, who, uh, I mean, what 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 they experience uh, on in the workforce, in addition to to being the, the people most likely to be murdered now, black trans folk. Uh, that has to be part of this conversation. There's a, there's a phenomenal movie I, I, done by Dream Hampton. I keep forgetting the title, mm-hmm. but dealt with but a, a trans woman in Detroit. Um, um, mm-hmm. It was a, a powerful movie both in terms of talking about her experiences and her parents, I guess her mother and her family, growing acceptance of her, her life, but mm-hmm. also was told the story of how the way society treats trans people. She was forced in a certain strata of work that yeah. was kind of a, um, a thin line between formal and informal work. 
mm-hmm. and then given her vulnerability, when the police want to bust her pimp, they threatened mm-hmm. her being thrown to a male holding cell, and yep. then they busted a pimp and told her pimp how they found out about her, and she was murdered. And it was yep. an incredibly moving film, a documentary, bring all the things together, both the personal of the person mm-hmm. herself, the personal mm-hmm. of her family, um, the mm-hmm. evilness of her pimp and the police, to be honest, as well, but also how that <laughs> face interface with the question of the labor markets as well. And so simply, as you mentioned, the idea of looking at the whole question of trans work and trans people and mm-hmm. the work thing is you know, very important thing to look at and seems very, the connections are very parts of our, of our lives. But I want to raise the question not but Anna, whatever the I'm really bad on premises, mm-hmm. by the way. I was the butter and whatever else, but going going <laughs> forward. Um how does class impact how feminism works out in the black community? And 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 so my understanding, which is distorted in many ways, right? That you saw kind of the larger women's stuff being in, in the importance of race being brought into it and causing changes in the larger women's movement. To me, class in the same sort of role, but I want to look kind of a, a family conversation now. So do you see ways in which fem- black feminism, maybe it's to say, say feminist right now, um, has different sort of class applications inside the black community? Is that semi-clear what I'm saying? Is it kind of mumbled and jumbled? As- yeah, it's clear. Well, give me a clear answer now. Come on. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't think of, I mean, I, I I would say that one of the reasons you had black feminism emerging in the 19th century, in the early 20th, it was because of class. It, 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 it was because black women experienced racism, patriarchy, and class inequality. Class was always, was always a part of, of, of black feminism because we constantly talk, black feminists constantly talk about us having, having, the, the worst pay, the worst kinds of jobs, service jobs, uh, inability therefore to, to, to have a certain uh, level of living. And, and we always talked about it, Cherie said, that we are, we are in the wage labor force always. Black women are wage workers, period. And so black feminism never was about um, uh, uh, the black, the few black women in our communities who had class privilege. It was always about of what does it mean to have not have class privilege, race privilege, or gender privilege? And I also think the other piece that comes up specifically is how am I gonna take care of this household? Right? Like not just me, yes. right, and my own independence yes. or whatever the case may be, but when we don't have control over our reproduction, that means that we also have to figure out how we're gonna take care of ourselves, our communities. And that means that you're doing work that you may not ever want to do. Um, you're doing multiple jobs and you're, you're having to make choices. They're not even choices, right? Like you're, you're making decisions based off of what is available to you. And I do think it is important to recognize that, like, I'm very clear that if my father did not have a union job in the South, I, I, am, I am not sitting here. Right. It is a very different trajectory. My mom could not mm-hmm. get that kind of work. Right. She was administrative assistant. It didn't matter how much education mm-hmm. she got. She couldn't get past yeah. that. Did not matter. Still does not matter. 
right? Um, yeah. And so she would not have been able to give me a college education based off of the wages that my mom was getting when we when I when we were living in Atlanta. Um, and so it, you know, these there is no separation, right? Like uh, I, I have been always very well aware of what my what my class was and what class privilege I had. It just wasn't until later that I understood that this job security that my dad had was the reason why I was able to have a particular class status, right? Mm -hmm. And most people don't, they don't have access to that, right? They didn't, right? There's not a plethora of, of great union jobs that are welcoming all the, all the black folk in, in the South. Um, I would say that yeah. that's sort of um tight connection between class and, and black feminism is not always how it's projected. And I think right. and I think also when we look at kind of this current wave of, of black mayors in big cities, um a large majority of those are black women. And many of them are operating in a way to maintain, for lack of a better term, a neoliberal city project whether it be in San Francisco or in Atlanta or in, in D.C. So I think that what happens sometimes in the projection of certain things is there's a celebration of, of Black women in power, but not actually challenging the structure of the power that, when, 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 within which they operate, and then given that how they actually operate themselves. And that's why I'm kind of raising the issue, that, 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 that having a, a, a Black woman mayor of a large city doesn't end the question of police brutality. It, it doesn't allow for a new pathway, that kind of development that actually uplifts entire people, not simply enrich a, a, a few. And so I, so I keep getting back to not just the ideas and and the examples of, of kind of of tight connectivity of certain things, but how things are rolling out in, in, in today in, in our world. But you can't conflate that because black political power, quite frankly, there's a rash of light skinned mayors who've been done damage, damage, neoliberal damage, right, over the last couple of decades. And, and many of them have been men, right? So bl black men and black women alike get into these positions and are moving a, a business, a business uh, uh, agenda. Some are more overt about it than others, but that has de def definitely been the case ac across the board for a while now. And I just want to be clear, Keisha's also not the mayor in Atlanta anymore. It's Andre Dickens. We'll see what kind of project he moves, um, you know, and he's a friend of mine. But anyway, but I'm just saying that like we, the way that black political power has been wielded over the last couple of decades, it, we actually really need to spend some time having some conversations about that because the, the, the connection with uh, Wall Street and, uh, you know, the, the, the um, basically selling skin, quite frankly, um, some folks, you know, just, just kind of in there. Um, off of off off of skin and not necessarily also uh, off of skill, um, and they're not bringing a black community in there with them. And quite frankly, we haven't seen the kind of organizing where somebody wins an election in the way that is groundswell up from you know the the communities. We've seen people selling our communities out and pushing them out to the margins. Um, and but that has been collected. Oh, you weren't trying to say that black men mayors do a wonderful job at all. I, we could have an episode on no. the phase of, of of black men mayors as well. 
Um, being from Chicago, by the way, I can get a whole host of folk, of black male politicians, soul folk down the river, okay? I'll but just black women, ter- but just being black woman doesn't make you a black feminist. No, not at all. In fact, you can be anti-feminist. This is the whole point. You can be anti-feminist and be a black woman. I, I mean, I, I experience that daily. Anti-feminist. Correct. And and what, and what I am trying to tease out both in my understanding and my expression of my ideas as a, as a form is the unity of, I guess, ideas and the world we operate. And what I mean by that is, is um, what I may think, and could be a number of ways, and limited, by the way, that in this context, that the experience of, of of black women should ground the idea of black feminism, and 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 therefore, it's not just a matter of ideas that are held and not held. It's also a matter of experience that people have, and images that are projected. Um, so it's not purely a matter of ideas. And, and that's what I keep trying to get back to. I'm not kind of struggling how to express this, but I'm trying to say that you're right fully that folk can be of a certain type, but I have the ideas. I fully get that 100%. But I think that just taking any ideas, it could be feminism or socialism or name it, and just putting in a box of ideas is very limiting. And I'm trying to see how we can talk about ideas connected to other stuff and therefore correct being a woman to make, make me feminist. But at some level, the projection of a strata or a substrata of a strata has to be examined in, in different ways. That's, that's all. Cause my concern once again, as I said before, is that without the power, then you can take the initial expression of black feminism, this example, by the way, those other examples, and then get into a narrow view of representation. And so I'm trying to not separate the idea of, I'll call kind of, lack of a term, boots on the ground and, and, and from ideas. That's not struggling to do. And I, this is, I'm not quite speechless because I hate to do that for the first time ever. Okay. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to express this in ways that, that make sense to me and f- advances conversations. You know, I, I, I don't know how many more times we can say this. Black feminism has always been about active activism and doing something. That's why I started with my mother. I don't know what her, I don't know what her black feminist ideas were, but what I do know is that she petitioned the Memphis public school system. She didn't have a, she didn't, I'm sure that she didn't have a black feminist theoretical anything. And so what I'm saying is that black feminists have always been on the ground doing something. So Ida Wells Barnett wanted to stop lynching. And so she did activism around stopping lynching. She went to England and she saw the connection between Europe's reliance on cotton and the South. They've always been uh, uh, not just having idea. I mean, always on the ground, always. So I, I guess I'm, 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 I'm having a little bit of difficulty with this notion that it's just a, a black feminist ideas that are not, uh, uh, producing uh, something. And I didn't mean. I didn't mean to say that. Um, so, yeah. so, so forgive me if I came off that way. Um, no. But yeah. Can I just also 
really quickly. I, just, I, 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 I can try to save me, sure you're going to... Well, no. <laughs> no, but, but, but I think this, this is the point that I was making about even particularly with intersectionality. And again, I want to be clear that um, what Kimberly Crenshaw did was a thing that had been being done, right? But it crystallized at the right time in a, in a way that people could, act, you know, hold on to it. But the crux of it is, is that what happens when you put black women at the center of these systems is that it illuminates the oppression in a way that you can see the complexity of it. And you can see that by putting those narratives at the center, that there was an intentional construction that me- that was meant to exclude, right? And so, you know, one of the things that happens in the article, she says, is somehow it's really funny that when Black women were saying, we need to be able to bring racism and sexism uh, at the same time and, 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 and have it be engaged as these oppressions that are happening at the same time, that they were like, nope, that's two bites at the apple. But when white men came back and said reverse discrimination, they didn't require them to meet a burden of mm-hmm. saying that I'm experiencing both racism and sexism, right? Because the whole system was built to, and designed to center and, and, and to support them to a certain extent, right? And so the, 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 the piece around being able to explain why the conditions are what they, here what the conditions are. Why am I experiencing this? Why can't I actually just get this job or just apply for or just do the simple thing that other people do and be able to sustain and take care of myself? Again, when you bring these narratives of folks who are deeply in the margins and sit them in the center, it illuminates all of the barriers that we're unable to see. And it makes it a lot easier for us to start building and doing and designing and, and creating the remedies to address to address the problems that exist. And so again, that piece around the around the um I've just never understood or thought about a black feminism that wasn't rooted in class. Now the thing that I've had a tr- had difficulty with is like why the 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 structural um ways of being able to um organize with 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 unions and labor why that's been why there's been so so much of a disconnect but quite frankly I sit in labor for long enough and I realize it's a disconnect because there's so many damn barriers right like there's so many barriers to being a woman of color in the labor movement in labor institutions um, and they still they still exist on so many levels and so in some instances, people may say, here's an institution that I can use that we know has worked, right? In terms of, uh, um, we know that Black women who are in unions do better, right? We just know that that we have the statistics that bear that out. But it can't be the only pathway because it's, it's just, there's still too many barriers to being able to actually realize it. As you're talking, Sheree, I thought of something you mentioned before when we were talking about how and if I'm wrong, tell me next question, right? And <laughs> next thought. But I thought I remember you saying was that sometimes you're in some circles when and and people will talk about intersectionality and talk about race and gender and sexual orientation, but forget about class. And, and you've had to bring that into the conversation. Did I get that right? And can you expand on that a bit if I got it right, if I got it wrong? Well, no, what I was saying is that we talk about class and poverty, but we don't talk about labor, 
right? And so it's like the state of being, right? The state of being in an impoverished neighborhood or the state of being impoverished. But we don't necessarily talk about work and labor in the ways that I feel like we need to. And so that's the area where I just feel like there's a lot of work to be done. It's not that it's not there. I just don't think that there's been enough work to weave and tie those narratives together. How did you, how, how did you do that? I mean, I mean, I do that by coming to work every day. Honestly. I mean, that literally is the work that I do every single day. Definitely. I, I, I used to say a metaphor. I got up getting to land the plane a little bit. This is the big, massive plane that got to kind of land. So I wanted mm-hmm. to begin to land. This has been really, really good, by the way. And um, to be honest for you and Sheree and for the audience, uh, I feel almost constrained. I feel like being kind of a, 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 a co-host. And there's so many <laughs> things I want to ask you and learn and go dive into and, and do battle with. I, I, I tell people jokingly, well, not jokingly, my, my father said one time that he and his best friend would argue half the night, and they at midnight they swap sides, keep on arguing, and and so they so, yes, yeah, I saw the whole look on your face. So this idea of kind of engaging ideas is deeply, and I mean, I'm, I so I so appreciate what we're doing now. I really do. Um, so, so thanks a lot for, for joining me. But I want to be, begin a, a broad sort of landing, and ask you to kind of talk about your vision of Black freedom, not the one minute elevator speech, but kind of the the, the manifesto on black freedom, according to Beverly Guy Sheffield. <laughs> it's real. It's pretty simple. I mean, it's it's what I started off with. Black freedom means that we have to get rid of all of the systems and norms and behaviors that keep black people across class, across gender, across race, across sexuality unfree. And one of the things that I really n- need to say is I want all Black people, including Black men, and this was bell hooks, to embrace an intersectional Black feminist politics, not just women. We we cannot free the Black community unless we deploy an intersectional Black feminist politics. And and Cherie talked about why that's so important, because once you do that, it opens up, it illuminates, it clarifies all of the ways in which these structures of oppression are interconnected and impact all of us. So it impacts a, a gay, a little gay boy who's growing up in a household with a mama and a daddy who want him to be straight. That's why you have to have black feminist politics. That's just one example. So that's some, some, so my idea of freedom is the idea of freedom that 19th century black feminists had without the sexuality discourse. Because I think that it will free Black people in general across all of these uh, vectors of difference. Thanks for that. Um, what books are you reading? What are you reading? What's, what's, what's on, your, on your shelf that you're reading? Right now I'm reading memoirs because I want to try to write a memoir. So I'm, I'm, I'm reading memoirs. And I'm also going to tell you what else I'm reading, which is a little bit odd. I want to do a book on Black women's interior spaces, Black women's domestic spaces. And so I'm reading all of the, I'm looking at all of these coffee table books about uh, 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 women's uh, internal spaces. And most of that's on white women. So I'm, 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 I'm enjoying trying to understand how Black women, artists, 
activists, writers conceptualize home because it's also connected to our politics. Any memoirs in particular you're reading? Any one or two you want to put a shout out? Just one name, memoirs? Well, I'm rereading, I, I, you know, I'm reading so many. I'm, I'm rereading, and I'm reading old ones. I'm rereading June Jordan's uh, memoir. Uh, I'm reading Alicia Garza's memoir. I'm reading across uh, categories. And when can we, when can yeah. we spend your memoir, by the way? Oh, my God. No, I, maybe in two years. I, I will hold <laughs> you to that, by the way. Um, Okay. And um, what music are you, are you listening? To? What what music drives you? You know, you want to get picked up in the day and get through the hard day part of the day. What music do you, you, you put on? I, I still put on Nina. I'm old. I still put on Nina Simone. I put on Dionne Warwick. I put on Aretha Franklin, my homegirl. We grew up on the same street in Memphis, Tennessee, and then she moved to Detroit. And then I'm listening to James Ingram and Lionel Richie. So I'm back in the in the sixties and seventies. Back when we had good music, right? Sounds good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, Bev, it's been phenomenal, Bev. Seriously, and I hope hope we can keep Thank talking. You. you know, this is um, this is the joy of the podcast. By the way, I get to meet new people, and and get to get to talk about different ideas and learn and grow. And hope we can keep this up. Okay, absolutely. Thank you for being out here, Sheree's great first episode of a miniseries. Girls, been phenomenal. Yeah, no, you know, I talk <laughs> black feminism all day. Let's do it. Okay, we, we have yes more to go. Yes. Okay? So, um, thanks for being here, and this ends this episode of Black Work Talk. See you next time, y'all. Enjoyed it. Loved it. That was a great way to launch our miniseries on Black feminism. The godmother of Black feminism, Beverly Guy Sheffold, has a vast store of knowledge about Black feminism, and we just tapped into a very small sliver of that knowledge. It was wonderful to hear Beverly talk about the interconnection of oppressions, that this society simultaneously oppresses people based on race, class, gender, and sexual identity. And she drew upon lessons indicating that this perspective is not a recent one. While we are beginning to acknowledge the work of the Kambahi River Collective in the 1970s, Beverly spoke of the historical roots of this perspective, talking about people like I.D.B. Wells, who was both a fierce anti-lynching advocate as well as being active in the early 20th century suffragette movement. Beverly also spoke about the black women who organized a strike of washerwomen in 1881 Atlanta, another example of deeply intertwined nature of these oppressions. Much more rewarding than hearing sterile race versus class debates, or debates that give lip service to the importance of race and class, but in the practice favor one over the other. Shabir and Beverly pointed out that this approach is not simply an intellectual exercise. This approach provides a lens to treat folk as whole people, and this will yield better results in facilitating work organizing by tapping into dimensions of people's lives that might be otherwise ignored by narrow focus on monetary issues. I do wonder, however, and we did not get a chance to explore this more fully, how black feminism has been filtered in a way so that, in the popular imagination, many people would not define black feminism as Beth expressed it. That's a point we can take up at another time. What a great way to launch this miniseries. Thanks for joining me this week on Black Work Talk. Our co-sponsor, Organizing Upgrade, is now Convergence, still an online space created to strengthen social movements. But the new name is accompanied by new energies and new ways to lift up stories and engage in strategic debates. Please check out Convergence's website at convergencemag.com or its Facebook page. And pick up the new Convergence book, 
Power Concedes Nothing, How Grassroots Organizing Wins Elections. This is a collection of essays and interviews about the on-the-ground efforts that mobilized voters in 2020 across the United States. I hope this podcast can grow to become part of the network of our movement for change. We need your help as you build the Black Work Talk community. Please subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find your podcast, and go to Patreon to become a sustainer. And beyond the financial support, I'd love to hear from you. What do you think about the show? Any suggestions for future guests or future topics to explore? Please let me know. Reach out to me at steven at blackworktalk.com and I promise to get back to you. Till next time, stay safe and be well.